The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hello and welcome to another edition of Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal. I'm Joe Costello back again starting 2021 very strongly with the podcast. It's been great so far. Thank you so much for the feedback we have received. Let's bring on our co-host for this episode, Mr. Lake Speed Jr. Lake, welcome back to another edition of Hidden Horsepower. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, we've kicked it into high gear in 2021 already. A great list of guests going back to the very beginning. But today we've got somebody that's going to, again, another new road, another level. It's going to be great. Mr. Jake Raby going to talk a little bit about something that honestly is out of my realm. And so I'm very interested with the, the Porsches and the Volkswagens and the air cooled and the water cooled and all of that. Of course, an iconic sports car that I have been enamored with and interested in for a long time. This guy is like the man when it comes to it. We're going to get into that. But first, I got I to gotta mention that here we are recording an episode of Hidden Horsepower on a very special day for Mr. Lake Speed Jr. This guy is so dedicated to the Hidden Horsepower podcast feed, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, SoundCloud, the new TotalSeal.com website, that this guy wants to do shows and record on his birthday. Happy birthday, Lake. Oh, thank you, Joe. I appreciate all the uh, Hidden Horsepower listeners. That, of course, they all know my middle name now, so they all know that I'm I'm Chambers, so yes, it's Chambers Speed's birthday. I'm not going to tell you how old I am because I'm getting I'm getting close to being too old that I want to admit it. But you know, so I'm still in my forties. You for see, a little bit longer. Yeah, listen, you you <laughs> I knew you were you could hear me winding up on that one. I was about to say, don't worry, Lake, sixties the new forty, but. Uh, <laughs> You got out of it. You got out of it right before I was about to deliver. So great show. It's been a I lot of. You. I, I, I know you do well. I you've learned. You well, you're, 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 if I set you up, you're gonna you're gonna wipe me down. So that's what I live for. That is what I live for. All right, let's let's not go any further without bringing in our guest joining us from uh, Cleveland, Georgia, Mister Jake Raby. Jake, welcome to Hidden Horsepower, engine builder, but also, from what I understand, a listener of the podcast. Absolutely. I've, I've listened to most all the all the podcasts, you know, and what I do is a little bit different. I'm not much of a drag racer, never really have been, but I like to listen so I can get the discipline. And I, I learn some things from here as well. And then I start kind of connecting the dots with what Lake and I have been working on, you know, as we've talked about piston rings and and sealing and sumobore cylinders and all this stuff. So it, it's it's been a, a good little mix for me to uh to listen and now to be a guest for us who we are trying to put information out there i always wonder exactly what you just said is this information useful and being delivered in an entertaining enough way for someone like yourself to want to invest the time and what you just said really big validation and thank you for letting me know yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, it, 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 we have to expose ourselves to all these different things and different disciplines and different way of building engines and different clearances and everything to, to kind of get the big picture. Because, you know, even though I'm not into that stuff, sometimes it does help connect those dots. Well, exactly. All right. So That's let's what it's all about. 
It's connecting the dots. That's what it's all about, Joe, is connecting the dots. And Jake hit at me. That's why I'm so excited to have Jake on is because Jake and I, as we're going to bore everybody to death with, we've been doing engine development, right, in the name of his business, Raby Engine Development. Jake and I have been doing engine development together for probably close to 15 years. So, yeah, we're going to totally nerd out. So, fair warning, you know right now it's going to happen. Well, I like it. And I also think that the reverse has to be true. There's got to be some drag racing guys out there, engine guys out there who want to know how your side of the world tackles problems, challenges, and issues. But before we do that, in my imagination, I think that there are just fans of the automobile that are listening to this podcast also for entertainment to get to know the personalities as well. So we got to talk a little bit about you, Jake, and how you got started. From what I understand, you built your first engine for a paying customer at the ridiculously young age of 13 years old. How did this start for you? And how did you get a client at 13? <laughs> yeah, I'll give you the shortened version because otherwise we'd be here all day. So, of course, growing up in the mountains of northeast Georgia, which is where my, my facility currently is, and it's still located on the family property where I started all this, and the building that was a barn back then is now a storage facility for Porsches at my shop from all over the country. I've got 21 Porsches stored there right now from all over North America, actually, and that was a barn back then. You'd never know it now because it's been basically reconstructed. Um, but you know, when you grow up the way I did in the middle of nowhere, um, especially back then, there was nothing around. You know, you, you either did one of three things. You worked at a mill, uh, which they've all closed now. Um, you worked on a chicken farm, which is what my facility was back in the 1950s. Or um, you made moonshine, which is what my grandfather did. And he never even had a job. All he did his, his entire life was, was run liquor, as we say. Um, so, and even on that property, there was some of that being done all the way up into the mid 1980s, but long story short with that, you know, I growing up working on stuff, um, you know, my dad was not a mechanic at all. He wasn't an engine builder. We always had Volkswagens. Uh, he was never really a Porsche guy. Uh, I came home from the hospital in 1973 Volkswagen thing, which I still have today. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that the cars just really grow on you, right? And we had a neighbor who lived about five or six houses down the road, which was a mile or so. And this guy had a drinking problem, and he knew about working on stuff. But, you know, I got $8 a week for allowance if I got all my chores done. And I bought a lawnmower from this guy for $8. It didn't run. And I brought it home, come to find out the only thing that was wrong with it was the flywheel had rust on it, so the magneto wouldn't work and it had no spark. So it takes me about two weeks to figure that out. Uh, I was eight at the time. You know, I end up uh, cleaning the flywheel off, making it run. Uh, I painted it all up. I traded that for a snapper riding lawnmower that had no transmission. I uh, bought a junk transmission, put that in a snapper, and then I traded that for $50 and a Volkswagen Beetle, which is a 1970, which I still have. It's destroyed, but I still have it. Huh. And then, you know, back then you could buy a Volkswagen for $25, $50. Sometimes somebody would give it to you. So, you know, I ended up buying all kinds of stuff 
as my dad would buy and sell and trade stuff, we'd pick up a Volkswagen engine here or there. And, you know, by the time I was 10 or 11, I probably had 10 cars and I probably had 30 engines. But I remember the day that all I had was a milk crate full of spare parts. And I thought I had something, you know, and now I look back and I got all these containers full of all these core engine parts and all this crazy stuff, but it all started with a milk crate. Um, so fast forwarding a few years, um, you know, people started to learn that I knew how to work on this stuff. And I had a guy that, that had a, a, a old bug and he wanted to make it into a, a rail buggy and he brings it to me. And, you know, I ended up building an engine for him. And then his son had a Porsche 914, which the engine is very similar. Actually, Volkswagen made the 914 engine. And in, in Europe, the 914 was sold as a Volkswagen. So I ended up building that one for him. And that was my first paying customer for an engine when I was 13. By the time I was 17, I signed up to go in the Marine Corps. My, my mom had passed away when I was, was uh, 13, uh, almost 14. And um, so I had a big challenge there. What, what was I going to do? So I was like, look, I can go in the Marine Corps. I can work on helicopters. And that's what I did. But when I went and enlisted in the Marine Corps, I had 80 Volkswagens. I had my own salvage yard. I probably had over 300 engines. Um, I had my own business going on. It was kind of funny because when I was in boot camp, my dad didn't just like write me letters to say, hey, son, how are you doing? He would write me a letter to say, hey, so-and-so stopped by and wants to buy X part. I can't find it. How much should I charge him for it? And where is it at? Hmm. That's the letters that I got. So that's really what started it all. And then I, I, I worked on CH-46 helicopters, uh, both on the ground and in the air uh, for four years. I got out. And then I came back home and had a, a good, pretty good stash of money that I'd been able to save by building engines in my barracks room and, and buying cars and selling them in Southern California, which is the Volkswagen and Porsche Mecca. And I was able to kind of jumpstart everything. And I came back to the old building that I had. And then, you know, now we've got four buildings in two different locations and about 30,000 square feet of this craziness. So that's kind of the short story. <laughs> yeah, but inspiring. Like I, I listened to that story and I know I'm not the only one. And I think about like the drive, the determination, the the go getter attitude. Thank you for your service, by the way, in the United States Marine Corps. Semper Fi. Appreciate that. And look what it has blossomed to you and Lake working in the dino room, trying to figure out uh, the challenges of, of the world here. And that's what we're here to talk about today. And so, Lake, let's dive in. Um, in that Jake explained already prior to our interview that there's a lot of challenge in working on the modern engines put out by Porsche and that a lot can be learned on some of the older stuff before you dive in. So I want you guys to kind of go there in terms of what is the challenge, what is to be learned, and what have you guys been working on? Okay, so let's wind the clock back a little bit to give some perspective on where we end up today. You know, Jake and I first started working together when I was still at Joe Gibbs Racing when the oil program was still fairly new and the whole ZDDP, the zinc issue and oil camshafts wearing out was still kind of a new thing. Uh, Jake's got a really good uh, partner and friend of ours together, uh, Charles Navarro, that 
they had seen the issues with the camshafts and the oil around the same time we did. And we kind of came to the same kind of conclusions independently and found each other. We had kind of come to the same conclusions in terms of what the problem was independently. Then we kind of found each other through, <laughs> I forget now exactly that, oh, wait, we had kind of come to the same conclusion. We started talking and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we saw this experience, that experience. And we wanted to move forward, so we started doing, you know, oil testing. You know, we started doing oil analysis together, and really that was kind of the thing that we'd come up with different formulations of oil, and we could test them. You know, Jake's got all these cars, all these engines he's building, so we we're able to put oil into engines and then do oil analysis to begin to see these trends and patterns of where we were going, and then. And it's kind of a side note, Jake and Charles with the modern water-cooled engines are the guys that identified the IMS, the intermediate shaft bearing problem with these new water-cooled engines, developed a patented solution for that. And part of that solution required having an oil capable of handling the bearing, handling the coatings on the bearing that solved the problem and we assisted in that process. So, you know, long story short, we started out there, but as time carried on, and especially as we get into me being at Total Seal, one of the issues, and I'll let Jake kind of really get into it, is that Micasil is a bore coating process that allows you know aluminum block engines to be able to have a coating and I have to have a sleeve in it necessarily to be able to um, protect the bore and because you can't run aluminum uh, on aluminum well you, you can but it doesn't work super well <laughs> yeah without other issues which is a whole other side issue but so Nicosil was this good solution that's been around for a long time that Porsche has used from the factory for quite some time but there are limitations and consequences to Nicosil. And that's where Jake and I and Charles started looking at this Suma bore, which we did a great video Jake and I did as part of the Engine Performance Expo, which if you want to know more about that, definitely go check out engineperformanceexpo.com and you can get to the video that Jake and I did on day one about Suma bore. But that, that limitation of what we see in the future kind of brought us to investigate Sumabore. And so that's where, where this kind of old meets new, this hybrid really kicks in. So what I'll do now is I'll kind of open it up to Jake and let Jake begin to tell you the story about why Nicosil is great, but why we can't rely on it for the future. Yeah. So, you know, we love Nicosil. Of course, the Nicosil is, is, is short for nickel, silicon, and carbide. Uh, Porsche started using it with you know some of the early racing four-cylinder engines, um, before that they had used chrome cylinders. Um, you know all the air-cooled 911 engines that we call the Metzger, or at least the majority of them. There was a small period there where uh, Porsche did not use the Nicosil on some of the cheaper models. But as a general rule, this nickel-silicon carbide plating, if you will, um, was used like basically until 1998 in all the production engines and the race engines. After 98, when Porsche went to water cooling, 
they got away from Nicosil, and the main reason for that was because of environmental concerns that were happening in Germany at the time, as well as cost. And, you know, that was another big thing that was kind of driving a lot of this was because modern manufacturers were, were trying new things. And Porsche is not the only company that was doing that. A lot of German manufacturers were doing that at the same time. Um, so they went to a Locasil or a localized silicon cylinder, and that has proved to, to have quite a few challenges in the fact that sometimes we have cylinder bore scoring with these engines, and this is becoming more and more of a phenomenon uh, today as modern fuels are playing into some of these things where the roughness average of the cylinder uh, is aggravated by some of the additives in the fuels. So um, as we see more and more of these things, the fix that we came up with back in the early 2000s was to treat these water-cooled Porsche engines more like the air-cooled counterparts that had never had cylinder problems. So back before the environment was a concern, back before the economics of it were concerned, uh, Porsche was not a very profitable company. Uh, they were really starting to, to hurt in the mid to late 90s before these cars came along. And it really helped that company out a lot to make the changes that they did and the environment as well. So um, we treated the water-cooled engines like they were air-cooled, and we Nicosil-plated those cylinders. Now, Porsche also maintained the Nicosil plating with the GT2, GT3, and turbo models through 2010. So, you know, up until then, and even some models kept it until 2013, those were limited production engines, and the cars cost double or triple the amount of a base Carrera in some cases. So, you know, they weren't worried about the, the, the economics of it as much, and they also weren't worried about the environmental impacts as much because there were fewer of those cars being built. So as we apply the Nicosil plating with Ellen Engineering, that's Charles Navarro's company, it took a lot of time to work through what needed to be done to make this work from uh, piston profiles, ring profiles, you know, what we talk about a lot with these RVK and RPK roughness average values and all of those things with the surface finish. It took a while to get it worked out, but we've had it worked out for years. And now we're facing some of the things coming up that Porsche was facing you know, back in the 90s with this whole environmental thing, because now we see that all the processes that it takes to apply this Nicosil plating are very harmful to the environment, because there's a lot of acids involved with this. Every acid process requires a rinse, and that rinse ends up being hazardous material. So as more and more of these get done, because more and more of these engines are failing due to bore scoring, then you know, it's going to end up creating a scenario where the environment is going to basically take out Nicosil, and we know that. So we've known it for a while, and, and I want to make sure everybody understands out there that we are not doing this because Nicosil is not good. Currently, we still have not been able to get the Sumabor to work as well as the Nicosil, right? The problem is the Sumabor is a modern coating, is a modern process that's being made, used in all a lot of modern European engines today, and it is not bad for the environment. So that's why we've kind of gone to this over time. Yeah, exactly, Jake. If you, most people who are listening probably are familiar with how hard it is to find a chrome shop anymore. And Nicosil, that plating process, is just that. It's plating just like chrome is plating, and the reason for 
the Chrome shops going away is because of those same considerations. Uh, people may or may not be familiar with the fact that you know a lot of production engines anymore have aluminum, they're bimetal bearings. Well, one of the reasons for that is because lead, trimetal, you know, trimetal bearings that contain copper, tin, and lead, the three metals of trimetal, have been banned in Europe. Uh, so that those environmental considerations have been playing a role, just like the ZDP uh, uh, in the motor oil. These environmental considerations have been changing what's been happening inside of these engines from a metallurgy standpoint for quite some time. And like you said, the Sumabor is just looking ahead. Here's a, a coating. Actually, not really a coating. I think it is a coating. It is thermally sprayed. It's a coating, not a plating, that's sprayed in that contains iron and molybdenum and other things in it that is a completely different structure, completely different metallurgy. So now we're having to learn how to make this new soup. And everybody that listens to Hidden Horsepower knows that we talk about soup, that ring seal soup. And obviously that's what we're working on. So, Jake, why don't you tell them a little bit about how you went about or tackled this process of how do we take, you know, we're going back, like you said, Porsche way back was doing Nicosil. So we've got decades in Nicosil experience. How do you go about fast forwarding this learning process to speed up that learning curve to take decades of testing and development and try to condense it into a shorter period of time well that that was a challenge but i've had a lot of fun with it and, and i approached it from a common sense perspective because i do know both engines well both the air cool porsche and the water cool porsche and the good news is that we can use the same bore sizes with each one of these engines even though they are five decades apart from each other at this time so what that meant was we had an air-cooled four-cylinder engine that I was able to configure in such a manner, uh, both from ancillary perspective, you know, the things bolting on the outside of it, as well as the fasteners and things that I used, I could create an engine that I could literally have the cylinders off of in 18 minutes. And I could do that in 18 minutes without even rushing, Okay based on the fact that I put it together for this specific purpose, both to use in the dyno cell and in the real world in a car. And that even meant what we ended up using for sealants and things like that, which honestly on the dyno, mm -hmm. we don't even care if it leaks oil. We're not even sealing the thing up. And I've even learned some things about that from this process. But we were able <laughs> to use this old air-cooled engine that's extremely simple and, and use the same exact bore size between it and its water-cooled counterpart that was from 2004, okay? And so you were talking about an engine developed in 1968 being used to help an engine made in, in 2004. And, you know, the thing is, originally we started out with this not really even caring about ever applying the Sumabore to my air-cooled engines because of expense, honestly. But now we've learned right. that you know, it's going to make a lot of sense to end up doing that in the future, too. The idea was to use the simple air-cooled engine with the same bore sizes, the same ring packages, the same roughness averages, the same everything, and be able to co-apply that over to the, to the modern water-cooled engine that 
is not easy to work with. You can't even drain the oil in that engine in an hour, if you know what I mean. So there's, it's, there's a much, much different platform from uh, all the ancillaries and things. So what we've done at this point is there's been a few engines completed, uh, both water-cooled and air-cooled. The, the current engine that I have on the dyno right now, and I've got one more test session to run on it before I pull it off, and we, we change some hone angles and change some things with those cylinders, uh, with the Sumobore anyway, is, you know, that particular engine now has been apart and back together 14 times in about 29 days at this point in time. Um, you couldn't do that with a water-cooled engine. You wouldn't even be able to take it apart and put it back together probably four times in that amount of time. So, you know, we are using this air-cooled engine with all of its simplicity to give us the ability to work through the biggest errors that we're going to make. And, and I think that that's the thing people have to understand. We have nothing to go from here. There's no manual. There's no specs. There's right. no anything. We've had to create this from scratch. So it, it was very important to be able to work through that quickly. And, you know, also when it fails, I would much rather have it fail on this old air-cooled engine where I have oodles of good core parts to waste, basically, if you will, in the name of science, mm -hmm. versus the water-cooled stuff, which is four times the amount of money sometimes. So that's what we're doing is we're, we are working through this using the air-cooled simplicity to co-apply that to the water-cooled engines. So as the technology is employed there, we get further, faster. And another thing that was able to do, because this engine, the, the way it kind of has a modular design, the air-cooled engine that is, we were able to build one half of the engine, basically cylinders three and four, with the Sumobore technology, and we were also able to put cylinders one and two with the Nicosil technology and compare those two on the same engine at the same time with the same load, with the same oil, with varying ring tensions and varying ring packages because we knew the Nicosil worked really well for what we were doing because we got over two decades of experience with it directly. So being able to do that was awesome. I learned even more. Uh, we're doing the same thing now with iron cylinders on the other side of that engine, comparing the iron cylinder to the Sumobor cylinder, and we're going to learn even more about that. So those are kind of very unique things, and, and of course, you know, anybody is, that knows what a uh, old Volkswagen or Porsche engine looks like with dual carbs on it, you just imagine that we can even vary our enrichment per bank, and we can run this engine where it kind of is like two separate two-cylinder engines from an enrichment perspective. And I've even changed some things with the ignition timing uh, so I can end up changing ignition timing and change the tune on both of these cylinders as pairs and compare that back-to-back -back using what we know works and trying to get the things that are not working yet to work that good. Because I think once we get that working, we will be able to beat the Nicosil. But right now, we just aren't there yet. Man, you saw all my questions I was going to ask you. Because, yeah, those are all the cool things about that engine, is that you could literally run one half as one core material, the other half as the other. And like you said, with the, the carburetor setup being a quad uh, setup, you could sit there and change the enrichment side to side, bank to bank, uh, material to material. And the fact that we were able to run the different ring tensions, different ring designs in the same engine and compare left to right. Because, you know, the, the beauty of this platform 
which is now in people that listen to the show know that I, I love engine testing. I love being in the dyno and this is my favorite platform in the whole planet now because the ability to have those variables because the oil doesn't know if it's an air-cooled engine or a water-cooled engine. The, the sumo board doesn't know if it's an air-cooled engine or water-cooled engine. It, the grains don't know. It doesn't matter. It's the dynamics that soup between them all coming together. And the work you've done since right before Christmas was just mind-blowing how quickly, um, just for people listening, there's the, a the group chat between Jake and Charles and myself and probably what? 15, 20 messages a day all through Christmas and New Year's. Jake's on the dyno. Uh, you know, everybody else is on vacation. Jake's on the dyno out there changing parts. We're like, oh, yep, we need to try this ring tension. Boom. All right, you know, put this order in, FedEx in some new parts uh, with this ring tension. Try that. Okay, let's try this ring coating. Let's try this oil. Let's try the, this end gap. Let's try this. It, it was, it's been so amazing to be able to test so many different variables. But then the key thing is we're only changing one variable at a time. We're not throwing five, six changes at it. So what's really neat is that we've, we've got this air-cooled engine. We're able to isolate these variables because of the speed of being able to access the engine, make those changes that learning curve is accelerated and now we're going to be able to take these, we'll call it a new baseline package that we've kind of discerned from the air cooled engine and then put it into a water cooled engine and then go put it back out on the street and put miles on it to get not just that initial snapshot of what is it doing during your durability testing, but then put it in prolonged street use to get it. So I, the, the, the future with the, the Sumabore does look really bright. You know, Sumabore is not new technology. It's been around for quite some time. A lot of the Formula One teams and stuff have used it, uh, NASCAR, uh, NHRA. It, so it's not new, but it's never been applied like this. Obviously, the, the factories, like Jake said, are using it. Uh, a lot of the European manufacturers are using it because – it provides a lot of those benefits of Nicosil without the environmental downsides, but it, it is, it's, it's its own thing from, it does not like what Nicosil likes. It doesn't like what even gray cast iron likes. It's got its own flavor, its own the sweet spot for performance. And we're rapidly tuning in to that uh, really in, due to your efforts and just tireless work ethic um, to, to make this happen. And, and it, it's kind of cool. And I appreciate you being willing to come on Hidden Horsepower and kind of share some of those insights uh, that you've learned along the way in this, in this process in a short amount of time too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm just, I'm proud that, that we have been able to make the tracks that we have and, you know, also the fact that Total Seal has been so easy for us to work with. Of course, my engines have, have used Total Seal rings for years. Um, in all my performance engines, it's the only thing that I use, both air-cooled and water-cooled. Um, and the ability that you guys have to tailor that ring package uh, based on what you have for the roughness average and what you have for a lot of these things 
is is just great because otherwise, if we weren't working with you, we would have no way to do this because all the other rings that have ever been available for either of these platforms, we've already learned they don't have the right bore coatings or the, the ring coatings. They don't have the right ring tensions. They don't have the, any of the right properties to work with a sumo bore. If we were trying to use any of the original uh, you know, Porsche offerings for this, we would not be able to get anywhere near this. And we've already proved that because one of the first things we did was use what was available for these engines, and it proved to be a pretty much the most epic failure of all. And, of course, we don't learn from our successes. We only learn from our failures. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that's one great point is that a lot of people – and we, we get it on the tech line – a pretty common question you have to ask people is, okay, are you using Nicosil? And there are certain engine platforms that you know could kind of go either way, cast iron, liner, or Nicosil. And you need to ask them because, you know, going back to, like you said, nickel, silicon carbide, that because there's nickel in the Nicosil, there's a trace amount of nickel in hard chrome. And a lot of oil rings today still have uh, hard chrome facings on them. So just like the issues you mentioned on bore scoring with the modern water-cooled engines from the factory with the Locasil, the reason for that is because you're running same similar materials against each other, which ne- never works. So if you have a chromed oil ring or chromed any ring and you put it in a Nicosil bore, it's not going to work. So it's important to make sure you have the right coatings. And then back to the, the bore scoring issue, obviously one of the things we've seen, uh, and you mentioned the, the RPK, RVK values, and we can get into a profilometer a little bit for, for fun right now, is that obviously, you know, Porsche is not dumb. They, they know that you can't run an aluminum piston against uh, an aluminum cylinder. So they put the ferro stand, the ferro print uh, coating on the piston, which is you know, ferro being iron, that you've got this coating on the piston skirt that's going to protect the piston so that you're not running aluminum on aluminum. You've got this ferro print material uh, going against the bore that's aluminum. So you got iron on, on aluminum, but that surface finish, as you pointed out, creates a huge issue because one key difference we've already seen between Locasil and Sumabor is that Locasil with the localized silicon, those silicon nodules that are exposed above the base aluminum. So you have a bore surface that's more vertical in orientation with the, you know, basically mountain peaks going up. Whereas Sumabor is because it's sprayed on and it's like putting like golf balls in a barrel. And if you came in and you just chopped that barrel in half uh, horizontally and the balls were cut, there's still going to be those voids between the balls. Even though it's flat on top, there's these voids that will kind of, we will call it a valley, even though it's really a void. So that's what holds the oil to be the seal between the bore and the ring and to provide the lubrication for the ring or those voids, that's what you have in Sumabore. It's a downward, it's not vertical going up, it's more going down, that plateaued effect versus 
you know, the silicon nodules being these islands poking up and then the oil being around it, that, that orientation difference really makes a difference. Why don't you elaborate, Jake, on what you've seen hands-on between those two with the same tensions and oils and all that on the dyno? Well, and I mean, it's been the dyno, it's been using the fish scale to check the ring tensions, it's been just the tactile feedback from my fingers pushing the components through the cylinders because, you know, guys, data isn't everything. I, I can't tell you how much I've been led down the wrong road by just looking at data and turning off what I feel. And it's been the same way on the dyno. I can't tell you how many times I've had an engine that I would end up screwing the tune-up on because I just paid attention to the data and I didn't pay attention to how the engine performed and what I thought about it. My wife has five land speed records that still stand because we didn't pay attention to the data. We paid attention to how the car performed and how it reacted to the changes. So the same thing with this. What we've learned is a sumobore is its own animal. It, it In some ways, it is very akin to an iron cylinder, which makes sense because of how the thing is kind of composed. Other ways, it likes some of the stuff that Nicosil likes. Other ways, it's its own animal, and it, we just have to wrap our heads around it. And that's the thing about – I kind of like the fact that there's no books or specifications for this, and nobody has done this in the performance you know, aftermarket world outside of these really extreme applications and we'll be the first people to ever apply this in the performance aftermarket to what, what i would call kind of like my my production engine if you know what i mean when we get to that point which mm -hmm. is probably two or three more years down the road but what i've seen is you just got to pay attention to what you're looking at and you have to think about it and say what makes sense now a couple of things i've looked at and we went the wrong way with because I said, it makes sense to do so-and-so, you know? And while I was using prior experience to do that, we turn around, put in a dyno, and we see right away that, no, that was a very big mistake. So now let's go the other way. It's like when you're dynoing an engine, and you don't really know where to start with a new combination, and you start stacking ignition timing in it. You keep putting timing in it until it either noses over and makes no more power, or the thing starts detonating. Then you're like, okay, I went far yep, enough, I'm going to back it up. Yeah, so that's the same thing with this. And again, that's just what you have to learn from doing it. Um, and you can't get it out of a book, obviously. But I like the fact there's no specifications because we have to create our own because the only specifications that we did get came from the company that created this technology, and they were wrong for what we are doing. Not to say they're wrong for somebody else, but for what we are doing, we learned very quickly within about test number four they were wrong. Now, Lake, I want to bring up the biggest thing that we've seen, and I don't want to tell anybody what we did to solve this, because at this point in time, we don't know exactly why it did what it did. I would rather wait until we understand exactly why it did this um, before we explain what we did. But the oils that we've been using, the things we developed together, the things you developed at mm -hmm. Gibbs that we've been using for years – they have proved to work very well with my old cast iron engines. They've proven to work very well with Nicosil. We try to turn around and use a couple of formulas of that with Sumobore based on prior experience, and we end mm -hmm. up learning the biggest thing we've ever learned to date, and that's when we lost 70 pounds of compression 
on all four cylinders with an oil change in 20 minutes of runtime. That's all it took was 20 minutes to lose 70 pounds of compression back to back and also change the leak down with only using a certain oil. And the, the very important thing about that was all I did was take those components back apart, put them in the ultrasonic cleaner, cleaned everything up, put it back together again, changed the oil. We got our 70 pounds back. I picked up another eight horsepower. We retained our 70 pounds for another hour and a half run. And ever since then, we've retained that by just changing an oil, which is absolutely incredible. I've seen big differences in oil before, but I've never seen a difference that big with any oil applied to a technology other than this. It was crazy what we learned with just that oil change with a sumobore. Oh, it, yeah. It's, you know, an engine to me is a chemical reactor. That's what combustion is. It's a chemical reaction. You've got all these surfaces that are all the different metallurgies. And what we saw was a very, as you said, unexpected chemical reaction in the engine that, you know, baffled us. I mean, yeah, let's just be fair. You had a suspicion of what you think might happen. And you were right. And I was less certain, but I didn't just miss your thought. And then, yeah, with, with the application of some heat and some load to spur on that chemical reaction, it became really clear what was happening. And then, like you said, you did the follow the, not what the data is telling you, but what your sense and your gut says, all right, let's go the opposite direction on that. Just clean the parts. Let's go the opposite direction and see what happens. And voila, there it is. So, yeah, incredible lesson learned just by listening to the engine, trying, listen, what, what is it telling us? And then not being afraid to make some changes and go the other direction that, you know, it's like we talked about in the X, Engine Expo that if you start a test and you have a goal in mind, you can very easily influence that outcome to to be your own self-fulfilling profit when it's important not to do that. It's important to basically put your biases aside and say, okay, we're going to do this test in order and design that test so that it isolates the variable. And then we can see what the engine tells us if it likes it or not. And then believe it when it tells it, don't try to argue with the engine and say, well, no, I want, I want you to do this instead. No, just listen to the engine. It is your teacher. It's your guide. And it's been a lot of fun in these last couple of months to see what we've already learned so far from the Simba board. It's been a great teacher. And I think what is coming in the future is going to be a lot of other great lessons. And there will be, be more to be shared as we, as we go on. And we, uh, you said, fully understand these things better. And because it's a soup, like we said before, it, it's, it's not just the oil. It's not just the cylinder finish. It's not just the bore material or the ring or the piston. They all have to come together to make that combination. And what combination that needs to be, like we said from the people from Orlicon that provide the Suma bore, it's going to be different based on that application. So we got to make this soup to fit this restaurant. Uh, <laughs> we can ha make, make sure it works right. 
put, put your biases aside is something that we have heard uh, many times over our time doing this podcast. So you just got to, you know, you got to trust your senses. And I appreciate that as well. Uh, Jake, the word the future was thrown out there and hearing you and Lake like dive so deeply into this and hearing you mention that this is still like in the research and development phase and it hasn't, you are planning to take what you learn and put it into your engines in the future. It just uh, makes me feel so optimistic about the way things are going. Something we always ask our guests here on Hidden Horsepower is to forward along a little of that optimism, a little advice to the next generation people out there who are listening, young people who want to get involved in the engine building trade and how can they get to where, you know, from where they are to where you are. And I understand that you are, you're doing a couple of very interesting things in this arena specifically to help the next generation of mechanical kids out there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that this is a program called mechanical kids. And, um, you know, I, I kind of want to preface a lot of this by saying the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's, that's a thing I've got hanging on the wall of my clean room. Uh, and anybody that walks in, they say, man, how did you do all this? I point to that. I don't say anything. That's all I have to do. Um, because the key is you don't sleep a lot. You, you, you think and you apply while the other guy's sleeping. So um, you, and a lot of things with the future with this is a lot of kids are not exposed to the good things that I was exposed to as a kid and what Lake was exposed to as a kid and probably you and most other gearheads out there, we all grew up around stuff. You know, Lake grew up with his dad racing and being in, in you know, all the NASCAR stuff and all that. I grew up with a different world because I wasn't racing, but I was learning and I was applying stuff and I was doing science that was real when other kids were just taking science in class. And I didn't think it was science back then. I made it fun. So my daughter and I have kind of enhanced that whole feeling with what's called mechanical kids. So the way this started two years ago for Christmas, I got my daughter uh, one of these, you know, just a small Briggs and Stratton kind of clone engine for her go-kart. And it's a family owned go-kart. We've all the, all the cousins have had it. So finally my daughter got old enough to have the go-kart, but all the other kids had worn the engine out. Well, I said, look, you know, I want her to learn about this stuff. Not that I want her to be a mechanic or even own this company one day, because this, what we do is not easy. The people we work with a lot of times are not easy to work with. The applications are not easy. It's very stressful. And I don't really think that it's something I would ever really want her to have to experience the way that I have. But I want her to have the experience to maybe do these things and maybe be an engineer or a pilot or whatever she ends up wanting to do or just get disciplines from it. So my idea was we're going to take this old, old engine apart. This, well, it's a new engine, but based on an old Briggs. And I want her to take it apart and just put it back together again. That way she knows what it is. So she comes to the shop. We take it apart. We put it back together again. She really gets into it. I post a few pictures on Facebook. People are like, that's so cool that you're spending time with her and that she understands this stuff some, and she's interested in it. Because almost all of these fathers out there want their children to experience some of this stuff and maybe be like them one day, possibly. And there's not a lot of ways to experience that anymore. People are not growing up on farms. They're not doing what I did. They're, they're not really following their, their parents the way Lake did. So later on that night, it kind of hit me, and I said, look, you know, what we did today 
it was kind of a creation of a program because as she took these things apart on this engine, she learned the discipline of, of what the part was. She bagged it. She tagged it. She wrote the nomenclature of it on the bag, and we kind of put down a number as to where it came off the engine. So when it was all said and done, she would reverse the process and put it all back together. So for years, last 11 years, I've been instructing Porsche engine training classes hands-on, and I was working with her the way I work with these other aspiring technicians, a lot of which are professionals that just don't understand this engine, and they come from all over the world in my training facility to learn it. So she was kind of my student of the day, but it hit me, and I said, hold on a minute. This is something that is a real-life science project, and I think that it will help other kids. So I bring it up to Ava, and I'm like, Ava, what do you think about us trying to help some other kids learn about what you learned about? Because she obviously has the genes in her, you know, in her DNA to, to understand this stuff because it came so naturally to her and she's just been able to ace it. You know, a lot of other kids can't do that because they don't get experience with those things. So they may go all the way through high school and have a great mechanical aptitude, but never know it. It never gets identified. So I brought it up to the headmaster of her school, who's a retired Marine of all things, obviously. He thought it was a great idea. And then I ended up, you know, talking to some other people. They all thought it was a great idea. That spawned mechanical kids. And it's a basically, it's a kit. It's a kit that, that the parents or the school are able to purchase. And it's a learning experience. It comes with an engine. It comes with every single tool required to do that job, but nothing that's not required. It has safety glasses, gloves, spare parts. Uh, you know, it even has some of the driven racing oil as far as uh, the assembly lubricants and things like that. Wow. It comes in a toolbox, rolls around, and it, it has an engine stand. It has all the special parts, and it comes with a video series that is Ava walking through building this engine step by step, taking it all apart, and then putting it all back together again. And so the people, the fine folks at Haggerty Insurance found out about this, and they are really big into children and furthering the future, obviously. Who's going to have collector car insurance if all of these people that are inheriting cars aren't keeping them? And we're already seeing that. I mean, I know people that have collections bigger than mine, and when they get to be retirement age, sometimes they just start selling it off because the kids don't know anything about it. Well, one reason why is maybe because they were never exposed to it, and they just didn't get into it. So Haggerty realizes that. So they got behind it. And then Porsche Club of America also got behind it. And coming up this July at the 2021 Porsche Parade, uh, we're going to actually have the Haggerty booth set up there. And we're going to be putting together six engines. So Ava and I will be in there. And we'll have one engine in front of us. And it's going to be kind of a, you know, like a cooking show, if you will. You know, whatever we do is what other parents and children are going to be doing around these other five engines that are set up in this tent, if you will. Um, so it's just a learning experience, and I think it's a great way for some of these children that have a great mechanical aptitude, which you got to face it, is a God-gifted talent, you know, um, and they don't know it. So I see a lot of people that, that ask me, you know, how do I get into this? And I've even tried to give a couple of them a job, you know, and, and they just, they're not cut out for it. You know, I see a lot of people that, that just go to a UTI or whatever, and they never become proficient because it's not in their DNA. 
So I think it's important that we are able to identify those people that have it in their DNA so they can make a better decision about what they want to do in the future. Wow. I, I, first of all, totally agree. Love that. And I know there's going to be a lot of people kind of diving in on that. You have the, I've got a little nephew. He loves the video games, but I know that, uh, you know, he needs to learn, right? And maybe not everybody's going to be like you and building engines at 13 years old, but to, just like you said, to identify early on, like, is this a thing? You know, how many kids go out and get uh, lessons that help them later in their life? It's maybe not the focus of their career necessarily, but you get those early lessons to find out, like, maybe this will be the focus of your career. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes that exposure. You know, it just it really takes exposure to do it. And, and one thing that not everybody knows this, but I think it's important that I share it. But when I was in school, I was a horrible student. I was in special education classes from the from the time I was in third grade. Right. And I kind of took advantage of it because it made it made it easy for me to be put into shop classes. So when I was like a junior and senior, I had one academic class a day. And that was usually the last period of the day. So I would come in and throw a flywheel under my desk, and the teacher's like, you know, what are you doing here? And the girl sitting behind me, well, you know, she's complaining because I smell like a machine shop because I just made a flywheel. <laughs> it's because those teachers noticed that I didn't want to be there. And because of that, all I cared about was working on stuff. And they made it happen. And, you know, one of those teachers is still a good friend of mine, and, and I owe a lot of that to her because she helped me identify that it's just because it was my thing. Not every kid is going to be as extreme as I was with it, you know. Um, they just wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't want them to. But I think the key is to, to certainly make sure that the kids are able to get that exposure and don't just put them in the corner with a video game. You know, I see that happen all too often. Yes. Well, exactly. There's got to be balance. What a great program. And, and while things like this did not exist back in the day, they do exist now. And the future is bright for the next generation of machinists. Lake, they didn't have that when you were a kid. No, I was thinking about, you know, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to have my dad have a shop and be able to play around in the shop. And similar to Jake, I was a terrible student all through high school. And I was about dropped out of college. Uh, and my dad made me go. And my, my mom is the one that talked me into staying and not dropping out because I was disinterested. I just didn't care. And it was only after, yeah, because I'm not as mechanically gifted as a, <laughs> the guests on our show are. Right. <laughs> um, but, I, but I have an, an interest in it. And I do enjoy like when I go racing with my dad, dad's always trying to get me to be faster about lap times, driving techniques. I'm like, dad, you're the driver. I'm not. I like working on the engines and tuning on the engines and getting my hands dirty. I'm, I'm more happy to sit there and change gears in jets on your cart so you can go win than I am about me winning. Now I say that, then when I put the helmet on, I do want to win. So just know that. <laughs> I, 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 I spent, I sit in bag like that, act like I'm not trying to win, but I, I am. That's but it. I, I do. I love, I love getting my hands dirty. I, I would rather be in a dyno cell working on an engine than I would be anywhere else in the world most days. Um, I love it. And, I, yeah, I wish there was something like this as a kid because then I'd be like, oh, yeah, I, did, I don't need to go do all the other kind of stuff. 
because, you know, like Jake, I taught myself most of what I learned after the fact. I mean, I'm thankful that I went to college. I'm thankful I stayed through and, and persevered and did graduate. But uh, the stuff that I've learned, I had to teach myself. Why did I teach myself? Because I had a passion for it. Because then I saw the need for it. If you don't see the need for it, you're not going to do it. And this is a great process, great program. I think about my four kids. My son, Benjamin, my youngest one, he's the one that would build anything out of Legos. He's like Ava that could it would just jump into it. All my tools were gone, my toolboxes, man. He's the one who took them. So you got to <laughs> give kids a chance to get their hands dirty and to learn and, and, and then let them go. And, you know, I think what Jake and Ava are doing here is really great. And she's a wonderful kid. I mean, she's just got – she's like her dad. She's just got that I'm on – 100 miles an hour, hair's on fire, go all the time. She is no let up, no check up. And I think this going to be a pretty, I think this program's got uh, tons of potential, sky's the limit. Love it. And Jake, why don't you give one more time for people out there the information about the program and, uh, you know, a website where people can find out more about your business, uh, Rabies Engine Development. I know we just touched on the very surface here on this episode, but it was very obvious that you guys have the ability to go very deep. And I know you and Lake both create a lot of videos and a lot of instructional uh, tools for people out there. So there's going to be more to find in addition to this uh, podcast, but give us the website. And of course, where can they find out about, uh, about the next generation? So I have a YouTube channel, which has become very successful, not that it makes any money, but that it actually <laughs> educates a lot of people and, and gets rid of information or misinformation, which is actually worse than no information, right? And that is REN vision, R-E-N-N vision, and that is the German word for speed being REN. So if you go to uh, RENvision.tv, that will take you over to the YouTube channel where we have 150 or so uh, videos that are all technically based. Um, some of them are some 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 of the series that we have are 14 to 15 hours long, broken down into 10 or 12 parts about cylinder bore scoring, about IMS bearing failure, and it's all derived from direct hands-on information. I'm not one of those guys that reads something over here and goes and parrots it over there. I, I don't really believe in that. So that is rendvision.tv. Uh, also, you can go to flat6innovations.com. That's flat, the number six, innovations with an S.com. That's the water-cooled Porsche side of things. You can go to aircooledtechnology.com for the old Volkswagen and old Porsche air-cooled stuff. And then mechanicalkids.com currently is not populated with any content, because just about the time that we were ready to release it all, that's when Haggerty came on board, and it's kind of changed everything and made it a lot better from how we're working with them and using some of their resources with RPM Institute, a couple of other colleges that are into this sort of thing. Um, and that is where that content will be populated. There's also a Facebook page, Mechanical Kids, that will be populated sometime in the next month or so. But nobody really knows about this program, guys. I mean, this is kind of like its big release. Uh, I was on Cars Yeah a few months ago, and I mentioned it on there. But at that time, Haggerty hadn't jumped on board. So, you know, that's kind of where we are. Ava's learning about business. She's learning about creating things. She's learning about organization and discipline so it's not just about the mechanical stuff and that's to me what is what it's all about is that exposure uh to to see if you know where her strengths and weaknesses are 
great program. That's what we need. The future, if we're going to keep motorsports and this whole car culture thing going, got to identify the interested ones early and then shepherd them along. Lake, any final comment to Jake as we part ways on this edition of Hidden Horsepower? Well, uh, thanks, Jake, for coming on and, and sharing those resources. I think anybody that's been kind of interested in any of the things we talked about from the bore scoring to the sumo bore and, and that, then, yeah, you said, Ren Vision on YouTube is the place to go. There's lots of videos there. Uh, Charles over at Ellen Engineering, they've got a YouTube channel. There's some great videos there. And, of course, EnginePerformanceExpo.com, and we've got Engine Performance Expo on youtube as well so if anybody listening has been interested in anything we said today or even prior episodes those are some great resources for that deeper dive uh to really get in there and see some of this stuff hands-on and make it happen so again thanks jake for taking your time uh to talk to us and share with the listeners uh what we what you what we've been doing together and what the future holds yeah, and thanks for having me on. It's been great. You know, I, I like doing stuff like this, and it's just so natural for us to discuss what we're seeing because we only talk to each other, right? Those texts <laughs> that we're doing back and mm -hmm. forth and all the pictures I'm sending to you and Charles, um, you know, it's just the documentation level, uh, all this stuff. It just, it's, it's awesome, and it's great to be able to share it with other people and to let them know that there is more in the future when it comes to cylinder technology and also piston ring technology and lubrication technology that's all stemming from this little place in the northeast Georgia, corner of northeast Georgia. So Very exciting. Jake, thank you very much for joining us. I'm say, yeah, the last place you'd expect is happening. And when he says he doesn't sleep, He's not lying. I'm telling you, I get text messages at 1 a.m. in the morning. And, of course, I reply back, but that's just what happens. Right? So, <laughs> yes, we're, we're making it happen. Things are happening. And, again, thanks, Jake. We appreciate it, buddy. Sure. And there he goes, Jake Raby Lake. Wow, what an episode. I have to tell you, though, not that I was struggling to keep up, but I was very interested because we're talking about cutting-edge technology here. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that was one of the uh, risks of this episode and me and Jake being together, we start talking and we kind of forget that there's an audience. But that's great. though. <laughs> that's what people want. They want just, to be in the room where there's information being exchanged that they don't have. And I think that that is exactly what this podcast is for. So thank you for that. And I'm just listening to the golf ball analogy. Take a barrel, fill it with golf balls, cut the barrel in half down the center. And you've got, you know, the golf balls are flat, but the spots in between the golf balls, what are those? That's where the oil is held, as opposed to the other, uh, which were more of like raised up uh, situation and the oil is in there. You, you made me see that analogy, which is a good job by you. Well, the thing is, we, you know, when we were back to the Engine Performance Expo, when Jake and I, we got, you know, he bought a profilometer uh, from Total Seal uh, a couple months ago when we started really getting uh, hot and heavy on, we're going to do this uh, sumobore testing. So we've got to be able to measure what's going on. And we, so we got the, the profilometer to be able to start doing that. I mean, the the QC process for the Nicosil, they already had that. It was so they got a report, so they already knew what it was, so they didn't really need to have one hands-on. So when we started measuring the difference between the two, between an engine that had a scored cylinder and one that didn't, even on the same block, well, this cylinder scored, but the other two look perfect. 
we could see those changes in surface finish and how it was influencing the wear. And then you start looking at these two surfaces and like, wow, with a profilometer, they look completely different. And you start trying to figure in your head, well, why does it look that way? Well, how is it? Well, then that's what it boils down to. So, yeah, hopefully this is an episode people thought was interesting and inspiring. And there's, if you're, again, curious, there's lots of resources we've already listed that you can go watch videos and see it, not just hear about it. Awesome stuff. For people out there working on projects who are interested, they're listening to the podcast, they maybe have a question about their own engine, what should they do? Uh, TotalSeal.com. Go right there. Uh, the request a ring function. If you're working on a project and you want to get a ring recommendation, go click on that. It actually comes straight to me. I'm the one that's going to reply to you. And if I can't get it, then we call up the wizard, Mr. Keith Jones, and let him <laughs> get in that. Already this morning, we got one in. Some guy had something. I'm like, oh, dial up the wizard. That one's out of my ballpark, buddy. Let Keith handle it because he's the master when it comes to piston rings. And so, yeah, just mean, mean that's one way to get a hold of us, but also – as you know, Keith always says, give us a call. You know, Keith, Kevin, Bobby, they're there on the phones every day, 623-587-7400. Give us a call. We'll help you out. He's Lake Speed Jr. I'm Joe Costello, WFO Joe on Twitter and Instagram. You can also hear my WFO radio podcast. If you love the racing stuff, you'll definitely love it. Lake, thank you once again, and happy birthday, my friend. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Everybody have a great day. And another edition of Hidden Horsepower is in the books. Remember, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, write us a review, Spotify, SoundCloud, hit the website, totalseal.com. There'll be more editions of Hidden Horsepower available soon.